Welcome to the Forbidden Forest. This is James, and we are reading Chapter 10 of Death and Other Origin Stories, Secrets Safe and Sound. September 1st, 1973. The boys left the feast, following the raucous crowd of Gryffindors back to the tower. I don't remember being this short, Peter muttered to Sirius as a few little first-years scrambled past to follow their prefects to the dorms. Sirius grunted a noncommittal sound, hands pushed deep into his pockets, eyes on the floor. Beside Remus, James was trying his hardest to have a conversation with Lily. Had a good summer, Evans? he asked, standing up straight and adjusting his glasses. She nodded suspiciously as he continued. Yeah? Watch any Quidditch? I'm muggle-born, Potter. Of course I didn't watch any Quidditch, she replied coolly. James caught Remus's raised eyebrow and swatted him with his hands from under his robes, his dark skin nearly blushing. Remus swatted him back and knocked him with his shoulder, maintaining an unaffected look. Oh, yeah, right, of course, he laughed awkwardly with finger guns. Remus snorted. And you, Lupin, how was your summer? Lily asked, ignoring James. Oh, it was fine, he lied. He didn't think anyone needed to know about his dad and his drinking, or about Greyback, or the fact that he ended up spending most of his summer working at the local ice cream parlor, just to escape the endless empty days alone. Very quiet. James was ruffling his thick black hair in that weird way that made him look as if he'd just gotten off his broom. Lily eyed him speculatively as Marlene elbowed her way between them, slipping her arm around Remus's and beaming at him. He lost track of his friends as they filed into the fat lady's corridor, Marlene arm in arm with him, chatting endlessly, only giving him the moments between breaths to respond. Password is Captivus, a prefect was saying as Peter materialized back before him. He grabbed Remus's sweater and pulled him away from Marlene. They ducked through the portrait hole, leaving her looking a bit dejected. Mates, James whispered as soon as the three of them were huddled together by the fire. Did you see Sirius when Regulus was sorted? I think he's gutted. Remus nodded, hands in his pockets. Poor kid looked like a Hufflepuff too. No wonder Sirius is worried. Regulus had looked so small and mousy, innocent, and so very pale. Nothing like Remus had imagined, knowing Sirius. He had anticipated another firecracker of a human with charisma and swagger. We should do something for him, James offered. Like what? Peter asked his eyes scanning the common room, resting on Marlene, as she swept her long strawberry blonde curls over her shoulder, gesticulating animatedly to Dorcas. Dunno, James shrugged, his eyes trained on Lily as she laughed with that stout second year, Oliver Karsten. We could sneak out tonight. We don't have class till Monday. I'm too tired to go out, Peter whined. Well, then what do you suggest? James demanded, turning his back on the rest of the room to glare at Peter. We could just go be nice to him, Remus suggested. James scoffed. You're both useless. Come on. And he turned to jog up the steps, already full of students making their way to their respective dorms. When they entered their room, it was dimly lit and warm. Remus breathed in the familiar smell of clean linen and freshly washed wooden floors. The thin soles of his chucks were muffled on the red throw rugs scattered about as they made their way to their beds. Sirius's hangings were pulled closed. James picked up his pillow from his bed and marched straight over to Sirius. Oi, he shouted, ripping back the hangings and lobbing a pillow straight at a very disgruntled-looking Sirius. What the hell, James? He sounded angry, sitting bolt upright, 
wearing nothing but his pants and one of Remus's muggle t-shirts. I thought you could fight dragons. Can't take a pillow? James taunted with waggling eyebrows, and Remus sighed heavily, moving towards his trunk. Piss off, will you? Sirius muttered, reaching to pull his hangings shut again. Oh, so you can't fight dragons, James asked, pushing his glasses up his nose, a second pillow gripped at his side. You calling me a liar? Sirius demanded, jumping to stand on his bed, looming over James, sounding suddenly revved for a challenge. Maybe I am, James said, now dancing weirdly like a snake about to strike, taunting Sirius, holding the other pillow aloft. Remus watched awkwardly, unsure what to do. Stand down, Potter, Sirius warned, his irritation and bad temper shifting subtly into a mischievous smirk. You'll never take me alive, James bellowed. I'll see you in hell, Sirius roared, looking deranged as he lunged off his bed and tackled James into the woven rug. Tell them who sent you, James grunted back, Sirius sitting on his chest. They began beating each other senseless with pillows, feathers flying everywhere. Remus dodged projectile objects as he attempted to unpack his trunk amidst the general chaos. Since none of them knew what to say to make Regulus going to Slytherin any better, it seemed distracting Sirius from that reality was the next best thing. Peter was pointing his wand at random objects, shouting Paulo Voladu, charming them to fly at Sirius and James while they ran circles around the room and tackled one another. A pillow smacked into the side of Remus's head as he was bent double, fishing his pajamas out from under a stack of books. Oof, he yelled when he toppled over and nearly took his bed hangings with him in his desperate flailing endeavor to stay upright. Sirius, he shouted, turning to face the furious pillow war, for the love of... He tried to reprimand before another pillow whacked him directly in the face, knocking him backwards onto his bed. Fight back, you yellow-bellied bow truckle, Sirius challenged from atop James's bed, brandishing a candlestick he'd taken from a side table. James dove out from behind him and took him out at the knees, limbs flailing wildly as they hit the mattress with bouncing, squeaking springs. Peter crawled over to the relative safety of the other side of Remus's bed, sporting a bruised eye he somehow managed to get, and watched shrewdly as they continued to wrestle. Remus turned and grabbed the two pillows off of his bed, pointed his wand at them, and whispered, Defendere. The pillows flew towards James and Sirius, still on the ground, each trying to gain the upper hand, James attempting to put Sirius in a headlock, faces red and cackling, and began to thump them about the head. Oh, James yelled in surprise. You crafty bastard, Sirius yelled, trying to fight it off with the candlestick, his wand forgotten on his bed. Peter snickered, finally coming out from hiding, and sat down beside the pile of Remus's sweaters. Fight us like a man, James demanded, throwing ineffective punches at the pillow. You brought this on yourselves, Remus simply said, a smile pulling the scar on his left cheek as he finally extricated his pajamas from the depths of the trunk. I was just an innocent bystander, caught up in a random act of violence. You'll pay for this, Lupin, Sirius yelled, hair wild, leaping onto the floating pillow and trying to use his body weight to drag it back to the floor. The audacity, I never... Remus let them wrestle the pillows as he finished unpacking. He climbed beneath his blankets and admired the hilarious sight of his mates valiantly dueling off the floating cushions, happy to see Sirius like this, alive and full of fire, like the dragons he had talked so lovingly about. Oi, he yelled, pointing his wand at his friends. I need my pillows back. 
He regretted every decision he had ever made as soon as he cancelled the spell. He saw James and Sirius grin evilly at one another, panting heavily with frazzled hair. Sirius? No, Remus warned, as he would to a poorly trained dog, pointing his wand directly at his face in rebuke. Sirius, yes, he shouted, charging Remus with startling ferocity, pillow in hand. James was on his heels, yelling a war cry. Remus dove under his covers, laughing and yelling idle threats as Sirius, James, and for some reason Peter were all jumping on his bed like the feral humans they were, all smacking him with pillows. Admit defeat, James cried. Surrender, Sirius demanded. Gods, you're all a menace, Remus's muffled voice shouted from under the thick duvet, his body bouncing wildly on the bed. Peter, whose side are you on anyways? The side of the victor, Peter exclaimed jovially, maniacally. From the sounds of it, Sirius had stopped hitting Remus to direct a blow at Peter, knocking him off the bed with a pitiful and shocked groan. We're men of honor, Sirius boomed, diving off of Remus's bed and beginning to chase a shrieking and scuttling Peter. James dropped Remus's pillow and plopped down, panting. He began to smooth out the blankets of Remus's bed like a mother hen as he emerged from his hiding place. Through his mused hair, he could see Sirius throwing rolled-up socks at Peter, who was shooting them away with his wand. Peter ended up with two black eyes from running into furniture, and Remus had laughed himself nearly sick when James tripped and belly-flopped onto the floor. He laughed so hard, in fact, that he tore open a scar by his mouth, blood dripping down onto his duvet. In an absent wave of his wand, Sirius had healed them both, as they all piled onto Remus's bed, panting and laughing, tired and pleased with themselves. Sirius seemed to be in a bit of a better mood, though still subdued and worn-looking, as he pulled his silk pajamas over his t-shirt. James slung an arm over Sirius and pulled him to his side, and Peter shoved his cold feet under Remus's thigh. He ran his thumb over the tingling, healing spell on his jaw, and James reached over to swat his hand away as he spoke. Tell us more about the golden house dragons, Sirius. I have never even heard of those. It was a long, long time before they all drifted back to their own beds to sleep, and Remus dreamt of running through the forest, paws heavy on the earth. September 3rd, 1973. The great hall was filled with the general chaos that the first day of class often heralded. Heads of houses were marching up and down their tables, talking to third and fifth years about class schedules, making arrangements and shouting out intermittent reprimands at some of the younger years. Sirius was back to being sullen and quiet, having disappeared for most of Sunday. He had dressed silently that morning and left for breakfast without waiting for any of them. Remus had walked shoulder to shoulder with James as they listened to Peter try desperately to have a conversation with Marlene. Remus was biting down on the inside of his cheek, trying not to laugh as James jostled his shoulder, listening to Peter say awful and painful things like, you know, I have quite the gobstone collection if you ever wanted to see it or Remus's personal favorite. I would have tried out for Quidditch if it wasn't for my leg. Yeah, I uh, injured it fighting off a hippogriff. They eventually found their way to Sirius, sitting quietly, lost in thought at the Gryffindor table, facing a little group of Slytherin first years. Remus watched as the small boy, so similar to Sirius and yet so different, giggled shyly with his classmates. James dropped beside Sirius and threw an arm around him, resting his head on his shoulder, but not saying anything. Sirius dropped his head onto James's and sighed. 
Rima sat across from them, listening to Marlene try and escape Peter's undivided attention, feeling much pity for his most awkward friend. They had a quiet breakfast, the ruckus of the startup terms swirling around them. Remus had picked up a discarded daily profit from the empty seat beside him as he ate his sliced apple with peanut butter. On the front page read, Decree for the Reasonable Restriction of Underage Sorcery. Written in 1875, the often neglected and little reinforced decree has become the focus of renewed debates as the Wisdomot discuss its relevance in today's society. Some members feel that it is imperative to the preservation and protection of wizarding society that underage students not be allowed to perform magic outside of school. The upcoming vote is to decide whether to dissolve the decree or begin to properly reinforce it. Some argue that this is a ploy to make magic inaccessible to muggleborns, punishing them for using magic in muggle homes. Whereas there is little ability to track and regulate magic being performed by underage students in magical homes or those being homeschooled, as the trace is occluded in places of dense magic. Remus read the rest of the article, then read a few more. He thought that he ought to take out a subscription for himself as he looked through a half-finished crossword puzzle, for the comings and goings of wizarding society were much more interesting than anything he had read in his mum's celebrity gossip magazines or the Sunday papers he found in his hometown library. It's not as if his dad ever kept him informed, either. He flipped the page towards the end of the paper to see a looping image from the back of a gathered crowd, nodding and cheering, fists raised in the air as a man in dark robes and a starkly white face spoke with intensity. Wizarding pride or prejudice? As anti-muggle sentiments and incidences rise, so too do the formation and strength of right-wing conservative groups with aims towards preserving wizarding heritage and blood purity. These groups have gained popularity over the last decade, but some are still skeptical about the radicalization of traditional beliefs. Good morning, gentlemen. Remus startled at McGonagall's clipped tones, suddenly so close. She stood beside James and handed him a sheet of blank parchment. Remus folded the prophet and set it aside. Muggle studies, she said with a surprised approval, reading from her clipboard. Very good, Mr. Potter. He beamed at her and pushed his glasses up his nose. I look forward to learning the function of a microwave. Remus snorted as McGonagall let out an audible sigh. She adjusted her glasses, reading a bit further before nodding and tapping her wand to the blank parchment in James's hands. There you are, all set. James read over the newly formed schedule as she turned to give parchment to Remus and Peter. Their schedules were easily as straightforward. Then she handed the parchment to Sirius. Remus listened half-heartedly as he read through his new schedule, mentally cataloging all of the books and supplies he would need to organize before the first bell, his thumb rubbing softly back and forth beneath his chin. Mr. Black, you had far too much free time in this schedule, she said, and he looked up to see Sirius shrug. He seemed unable to muster any roguish and boisterous nonsense, even for Minnie, as he buttered a croissant. I've added you to arithmancy, she continued briskly, clearly expecting an argument against the heavy academic burden. He shrugged again, nodding in agreement, sipping from a mug of coffee. She narrowed her eyes at him as she extended her wand and tapped the parchment beside his plate. I expect you'll excel with a challenge, she continued, visibly bothered by the lack of confrontation. Suppose so, Professor, he agreed without looking at her or the schedule. That's just what I need, more adversity. McGonagall stood frozen for a moment, staring down at Sirius. See me after final period, 
she said as if he had earned himself a detention. This, it seemed, was worth a reaction, and he quickly turned his head to look at her. What? What for? She didn't respond or clarify, and he watched her go with incredulous eyes. Sorry, mate, Peter offered. Sirius sighed heavily, shaking his head and pulling his mug of coffee towards him, hands wrapped around the mug. Beneath his fingers, Remus could just make out the Snowdonia, spelled out in trees, an eagle, a goat, and an otter. It looked muggle, another trophy from his gift shop raid, he supposed. Remus smiled to himself, buttering his toast. McGonagall had started their first lesson by welcoming them into their third year and warning them that they had only two more left until their OWL exams, no pressure or anything. Then she turned herself into a cat to wild and shocked applause, telling them that they would learn about the Animagus' conjurer spell that term. But before they got there, they had to learn all of the Anomalia transmogrification spells and theories in preparation. Remus surreptitiously thumbed through the Anomalia transmography section of Intermediate Transfiguration and barely repressed a grimace. It was nearly a third of their reading material. And, if that wasn't enough for them to wrap their heads around, she gave them all an 18-inch essay to be finished by the following Monday. They had all groaned and Peter had thumped his head on the desk. Much to Remus's horror, they discovered, in defense against the dark arts, that they'd be taking an intensive look at werewolves as well as a wide array of dark creatures. Bogarts, hinky-punks, and all manner of nocturnal beasts made up the entirety of their first term. Peter had nudged his foot under the desk, and Sirius had written him notes all through class, saying things like, Do you think Doge could spot a werewolf in knitwear if it was sitting right in front of him? Leaving Remus slightly less queasy. That night, on the wall beside his bed, he put up a moon calendar and began filling in his class schedule, determined to stay on top of his alarmingly increasing homework. Tuesday, in charms, Remus suffered a horrible ringing in his ears. They were learning counterspells and body binds that, when misfired, sounded like a firecracker or a bomb. No one else seemed to mind the pops and bangs, cracks and sparks of the charms classroom, but Remus struggled with it. It was too loud, too bright, and all too unpredictable. Sirius had customarily stood atop his chair, shouting his spellcasting above the din, adding to the chaotic flair of the lesson. Remus had been floundering and trying to remember what on earth he was meant to be doing amidst all the shouts and shrill noises, but instead, he ended up accidentally ripping open a scab on his wrist. He hadn't even realized he was doing it until there was blood soaking through his sleeve. Remus surreptitiously whispered the tingly little healing charms Sirius had taught him as they walked to History of Magic, hoping James wouldn't notice. But apparently, Remus wasn't as clever and quiet as he thought he was, because within moments, he was being tackled by James and Peter, who wrenched his hands from his pockets and held them tightly in their own, shaming him all the way to the second floor. Sirius hexed anyone who wolf-whistled at them. Binns was much the same, still dead, still a spectral being haunting his most precious chalkboard, filled with complicated timelines and rambling factoids, still droning on about some old warlock of mediocre talent who attacked and defeated the indigenous magical inhabitants of some far-flung lock or speck of rock somewhere and called it progress for magic kind. Binns's soporific tones recounted important dates of magical creatures arguing and fighting for equal rights and how wizards made ludicrous excuses not to see their humanity. Generally, Remus found the subject depressing and uncomfortable, and his idle fingers found the scars below his collarbones. He ducked out of Binz's class early, feigning a headache. 
unable to sit there any longer as he spoke about the 1563 Vila werewolf ban of the Scottish Isles, where Hevridius the Howler married a Vila and upset everyone in civilized society with their unholy progeny. He rushed down across the grounds with every intention of skipping lunch, not even feeling guilty about facing James afterwards. Since starting term, he'd been fantasizing about sitting alone in the greenhouses. No expectations, no interlopers, just stillness. From what he could see through the mossy, humid window panes, Slytherin and Ravenclaw third years were still in Greenhouse 3. He continued on to Greenhouse 2, his favorite thus far, the one with the cluster of bonsais at the back. He let himself in, breathing the mossy dampness and letting the humidity wash over him. Back amid the lushness and assorted potted trees and ferns, Remus familiarized himself with the new plants and acquainted himself with the older ones. He greeted the mantis, sentry on its ficus sir, and watered anyone who looked thirsty. After making his rounds, he plopped down on the earthen floor, pulled a shiny red apple from his bag, and took a well-earned bite. He sat in the healing silence, collecting himself and his swirling thoughts a long while before pulling out his old muggle sketchbook and letting his hand fly across the page in methodical swiping movements. Eventually, the bell rang for lunch and Madame Pomfrey found him. If you're going to be here, you may as well be helpful. She told him by way of greeting and threw him a pair of gloves. He spent a sweaty lunch repotting root-bound shrubbery. Loosen it more than that, Lupin. There we are. Shake the dirt off. Professor Sprout would encourage. Careful, the flutterby is very sensitive. Be sure to tell it how pretty you think it is, or it might literally die. After an hour of sweating and repotting, trimming and watering, and sweet-talking sensitive shrubs, the bell rang. He made his way to Greenhouse 3, covered in dirt, and took his seat between James and Peter. Sirius slid a toasted sandwich across the bench, and James threw a pointedly motherly look of disapproval at him as Professor Sprout called them all to attention. The next evening, he learned with alarm that astronomy had taken a turn for the intense. Over the first two years at Hogwarts, they had learned about constellations, how to divide and chart them in the night sky, watch them move across the horizon and rotate around them. They'd learned folklore of the ancient Greeks, Mongolians, Celts, Khoisan, Egyptians, Magyars, and Vikings. They had learned astrology and the divinatory capabilities of centaurs, and how others put meaning and stock into the stars and their paths across the dark dome of the heavens. He would listen to Sirius tell them all about his family traditions of naming people after constellations, about how his second cousin, Cassiopeia, who sent him and Regulus Carmelcorn every Yule, but about how she also started the family tradition of making muggle effigies to burn at Samhain. Or his Aunt Ursa, who loved flower arrangements but hated people, and even had one mounted on her dining room wall. He would listen as Sirius explained his namesake, the brightest star in the night sky, the dog star, how it was the most important star to the ancient Egyptians, the wolf star to the Hopi. Now, suddenly, they were learning about math, about the difference between a gas giant and a dwarf star, about black holes and the heat death of the universe. Up on the astronomy tower, with his eyes pressed into the telescope, gazing up into the vast nothingness of space, he felt oddly empty and distinctly overwhelmed as Professor Sinister's voice spoke of things Remus didn't want to consider. With learned precision, she stripped the magic away from Sirius's dog star, saying, Sirius is a binary star consisting of a main sequence star of spectral type AO named Sirius A 
and a faint white dwarf companion of spectral type DA2, termed Sirius B. Now, there is still some debate on the categorization of Sirius A. It gave him this uncomfortably vacant feeling, like the gnawing chasm within him, the one he tried to ignore, was reflected in the void above and below him. The space between the stars and beyond taunted him. It made him feel insignificant, pitifully pointless, as if conscious existence were some sort of grand cosmic joke, a mistake. Remus carried that empty, pointless feeling with him into Thursday, into their first Care of Magical Creatures lesson. There, they were introduced to a gentle herd of unicorns by Professor Kettleburn. The class had all rushed forward, fawning and gushing over the little golden foals, and seeing them gave Remus a fluttery feeling of hopefulness, of tentative joy. But as Remus approached, the adult unicorns threw their heads in agitation, stomping their hooves. Back, back, Mr. Lupin, they're shy of boys, Kettleburn had said. But there were plenty of other boys, Remus saw, petting and touching the unicorns. Davy Gudgeon even was practically draped across one little foal, hugging it with concerning intensity. Remus knew with icy certainty they could smell the wolf. It scared them. He couldn't blame them either. It scared him too. The small little bit of brightness that the golden foals had sparked in him dimmed. Sirius hung back too, standing at his side. He nudged at his shoulder, distracting Remus from his spiraling thoughts. Poncy things, aren't they? Too bad they're not dragons, he said dismissively, and Remus had snorted in agreement. Remus lay, restless and tangled in his blankets, the light of a nearly full moon heavy on the horizon, spilling in through the mullioned windows of the boy's dorm, disallowing sleep to take him. His clothes felt too scratchy and tight. Maybe it was his skin, he reckoned. His scars pulled, taut and tingling. He could hear the soft snores of Peter and James, but new Sirius had snuck out hours before as he had done most nights since the start of term. His stomach was a hollow pit, acid burning low in his throat. He had missed dinner again. He sighed heavily, fist twisting in his mangled sheets. He wished Sirius were there to take him to the kitchens, the coming moon staving off his hunger and keeping him from his mealtimes. He felt instantly guilty and embarrassed by the thought. He was an adult, wasn't he? He could take himself to the kitchens. He could eat like a normal person. He didn't need Sirius to hold his hand anymore. Didn't need Pumphrey's refeeding potions. He tossed the blankets from him, suddenly filled with energy and determination. He was an adult and he needed to feed himself. He was going to the kitchens. He threw on his gray and green sweater, the one with the drawstring hood and his purple sweatpants. During the day, with the moon but a distant thought, Remus was usually clumsy and uncoordinated, gangly and unbalanced. He had no grace. But on nights like this, with the moon big and heavy and bright, the wolf so close to his skin, his steps were light and quiet, his center of gravity low, his senses heightened. He felt like he was on a hunt, but instead of making him feel queasy and scared, he felt a little excited to be out on his own. A rare moment where he and the wolf were of one mind and one goal, together. He slipped through the portrait, the fat lady fast asleep, unaware of his silent steps on the stone floor. He crouched low and slipped through slices of moonlight in the wide empty halls and dark corridors, 
down, down, down towards the portrait of the fruit bowl. His ears were perked, straining for any sound, and his nose detected the faint traces of those who had recently passed on their nightly patrols. Remus reckoned he would have been nervous to be out by himself, scared of being caught, but he was surprised to find that it was fun. Alone in the big, quiet castle, dark and anonymous, no wonder Sirius snuck out all the time. He ducked behind a suit of armor when he smelled the caretaker's cat, Mrs. Norris. She was trotting by, on her own hunt, a mouse nearby. When she reached the end of the hall and darted out of sight, he continued, smiling to himself. For once in his life, he was enjoying inhabiting his body. Remus made it down to the kitchens without further incident, and the elves were pleased to see him, exclaiming that he had just missed young Master Black, and would he care for a drop of brandy in his hot chocolate, as Master Black had? No, no, Remus insisted, confused and disturbed. He was not about to start drinking brandy like his father, alone in the dark. Just a normal hot chocolate, please, and some cheese and fruit, if you wouldn't mind. I missed dinner. At the words missed dinner, the herd of elves bemoaned and exclaimed in horror, rushing about to bring plates and dishes of foods of all sort. The young Mr. Lupin is too thin, cried a house elf, pushing a plate of lamb chops towards him. He misses too many meals, squeaked another, sliding mashed potatoes under his nose. He hasn't come to visit us or call in months, moaned another, chopping cubes of Remus's favorite white cheddar with hurried determination. Mr. Lupin is wasting away, wasting. I am not, he argued, trying to reject a plate of roast beef in favor of spiced beets. I'm here, aren't I? I'm eating. We's be having words with Master Black, we will be, another said ominously as she shoved chocolate cake up onto the scrub tabletop. She turned to unfurl a large serviette before tucking it into Remus's collar with care and consideration. He shouldn't be keeping yous from the kitchen. He shouldn't. He should be bringing yous to us for feeding up. After eating his fill of cheese and sweet peppers, chocolate cake, and a few chops, Remus was uncomfortably full. He hadn't meant to eat so much, hadn't realized how hard it would be to say no to the worried and frantic elves. I promise I'm done. I've eaten enough, he insisted. His hand was clutching his distended and swollen belly as another elf with large, concerned eyes tried to shove a parcel of chocolate croissants beneath his arm. No, Mr. Lupin hasn't, he insisted, tying the cloth napkin full of treats around his wrist. The sad wolf needs chocolate, he muttered, and Remus moaned, rubbing his eyes in defeat. Okay, yes, fine, I guess the sad wolf does need chocolate, apparently, he acquiesced with an exasperated laugh. Finally escaping the suffocating affection of the house elves, Remus began to make his way back towards Gryffindor Tower, laden with pastries. He was tired and full, and the wolf in him slept, sated and pleased. It made him slower than he had been on his journey down. The wolf wasn't helping him any longer, and he wasn't paying as close attention. His footfalls began to make more noise. Lost in thought about how well he would sleep when he returned to his bed, he heard whispers and shuffling feet on stone floor around the corner from where he crept. He froze for a moment before darting to the side, out of the moonlight and behind a tapestry that concealed a handy niche in the wall, one he had hidden in with James once before. No, I definitely heard someone, came a whisper and footsteps getting closer. Well, a teacher wouldn't hide, answered another sneering voice. It must be another student, then. Do you smell chocolate? asked another. Remus's heart was in his throat. It was a group of Slytherins. 
From a sliver of light between the tapestry and the wall, Remus could see them emerging into the hall, looking around for obvious hiding places. Severus was among them, wand held aloft. Remus cursed himself for leaving the tower and never once considering that other students might also sneak out in the night. He marveled that after three years, this was the first time he was encountering others out of bed. I definitely heard someone, insisted a low voice that Remus thought might have been a fifth year called Flint. Yeah, me too, came the deep, guttural voice of a nasty fourth year, Emery Knott. Remus clutched his napkin full of pastries and prayed to whatever was listening that they would give up and move on. He had no such luck. In a flash, another, older boy yanked the tapestry back, revealing Remus, now illuminated in moonlight, there in his jammies, his bundled goodies clutched in his hands. Lupin! Severus exclaimed, accusatorily. Hello, he greeted awkwardly, as if this was totally normal. Anyone fancy a chocolate? He asked, extending his parcel, hoping aloof kindness might win him some grace. The hulking form of Remington Burke sniggered meanly as he snatched the proffered food from Remus's hands and opened it with a snort. Could give you detention for a week and take about a hundred house points for being out, you know, Not said as he took a croissant from Burke and stuffed it into his face, crumbs falling all down his front. Remus's eyes glanced to Snape hopefully, and he looked back with clear indecision. Are you even a prefect? asked Remus, unable to stop himself. They all snorted a laugh, save for Severus. No one answered the question. Or we could stuff you into that suit of armor over there and see how long it takes for someone to find you, offered a spindly, willy wittishins around a mouthful of flaky pastry. Hey, that's a great idea, said Burke, who reached for Remus. He tried to dart out between them, under their outstretched arms and hulking forms, but he wasn't fast enough. Sharp fingers gripped him tightly as he struggled and flailed, trying to kick and punch as hard as he could before wham. All the air in his lungs left him in a pained grimace, as he was sucker-punched right in the diaphragm, subduing him with a whimper. Hold still, will you? Burke demanded, hitting him again, and he felt bile rising in his throat, threatening. Snape, do something useful. Open that suit of armor. Gasping for breath through his haze of pain and unbidden tears, he saw Severus hesitate for a moment, looking awkward and unsure. Wand clutched at his side. I said, open the armor or you can join him, you little half-blooded shit. Not demanded harshly. Snape jumped as if hexed and scuttled towards the suit on a nearby plinth as they dragged a still-struggling Remus towards it. Gentlemen, greeted a coolly indifferent voice from behind them. Their wrestling match halted for a moment to face the interloper. Ah, black, said Knott, and Remus's blood ran cold. For a horrifying moment, he thought he and Sirius would be shoved into the suit of armor together. But with an unexpected nod of the head, Knott shot Sirius a cruel smile. Sirius took in the sight of Remus held aloft in the arms of his attackers, hands at his side, considering... Put him down, not, he said politely with a wave of his hand, as if asking him not to touch his things. Not and Burke exchanged a look, a long, calculating look, before setting Remus down on his feet and releasing their bruising grips on his arms. He turned to see Severus and Willie watching the exchange with absolute confusion on their faces, as if they'd been smacked with a trout. He felt similarly. Remus straightened his jumper 
pulling the sleeves down firmly over his arms and hands to cover his scars as he walked towards Sirius. Sorry, mate, said Burke, clearing his throat. Didn't realize this one was yours. Remus threw Burke a confused and offended glare, unsure how to feel about that wording. Sirius didn't look at him when he spoke, just continued to stare back at the two older Slytherins with his arms crossed. He is, old boy, as is Severus yours. He isn't, not waved dismissively. Remus caught the bewildered and possibly hurt look on Severus's face, but felt oddly relieved that he wasn't the only one profoundly unbalanced by the turn of events. Good to know, Sirius said, throwing an appraising look at Snape, who flushed angrily. Well, it was a lovely catch-up, gentlemen, but we must be going. He reached over and grabbed the sleeve of Remus's sweater. Sirius pulled him away from the gang of Slytherins, who watched them go without further argument. They walked silently down the hall until they were well out of sight. Sirius yanked him into another alcove behind yet another tapestry. What the hell, Lupin? he whispered harshly, grabbing Remus's face and turning his head, checking for injuries. Why are you out at night? Are you okay? What, you're the only one that can go out? he asked, deflecting, fighting against Sirius's insistent grip. What the hell was that about? Sirius dropped his hands and suddenly tried to leave. Nothing, don't worry about it. Remus blocked his way, crossing his arms. He was full of adrenaline, his limbs buzzing, his heart racing. Move, Lupin, Sirius whispered impatiently, not looking at him. Remus was flooded with anger and embarrassment that he could be so easily touched and overpowered by others. He was filled with confusion and some weird feeling that Sirius had been able to save him so easily, so unconcernedly. The phrase, didn't know this one was yours, rang through his head, making him feel small and insignificant, like a dog kept outside, one that roamed neighborhoods in its owner's absence, rummaging through rubbish bins. That's what he felt like, not like they were friends, but that Remus was some mangy and troublesome pet that Sirius had to handle, had to feed and care for, get out of trouble, like they weren't equal. I know you've been keeping secrets, Sirius, he said, relieved to finally be saying the words he'd been thinking for months. I know there's something going on you're not telling me. You've been weird and sad and talking with Slytherins like you know them, like they know you. And I know you're torn up about Regulus, I know, but I live with you and somehow those giant gits know you better than I do. They heard approaching footsteps on nearby stairs and Sirius quickly put his hand over Remus's mouth, ending his angry tirade. Keep it down, will you? He whispered grumpily into the hand over Remus's face pressing him further into the alcove with his body. Remus could smell the faint waft of brandy on Sirius's breath, and rage simmered in him. When the footsteps passed, Remus licked the palm of his hand wetly and grossly. Oh, come on, Sirius groused, wiping it on his black trousers and stepping back. Remus crossed his arms, oddly pleased with his childish act. Admit it. Admit you expect me to tell you all my secrets, that you expect me to put it all out there and be brave and tell you all the terrible things I keep locked up, but you won't share the same. Admit it. Sirius stopped wiping the spit off his hand and looked up to Remus with a caught-out expression. Be brave, Sirius. Remus's voice dropped, quieter and softer. You can tell me what's happening. Maybe I can help. You can't, he said, eyes looking slightly panicked. I can't. If I can tell you about being a werewolf in a world where people from pure-blood homes like you want me dead, if I can be that brave, then so can you. Sirius shook his head, backing up from Remus. This is different, he whispered. 
Be a Gryffindor, Remus pushed. This is bigger than all that, Remus, Sirius nearly yelled, his harsh voice echoing off the walls. This is bigger and scarier than houses and shitty families, okay? How could it possibly... This is nothing like you being a werewolf or the fact that you can't feed yourself properly or your drunk dad, okay? It's bigger than that. I have to play this game, Remus. It's the only way I can survive, okay? You could never understand. I could try, Remus pleaded, wanting to be there for Sirius, wanting to help as Sirius had helped him. No, he said with finality. I can't tell you. Remus felt like he'd been slapped in the face. It felt like confirmation of something, like the ground beneath them shifted again. Okay, fine, Remus capitulated, his eyes downcast and heart sinking. The air between them grew thick and static, their magic careful and still. The wolf in Remus growled low and angry. Come on, let's just go to bed, Sirius said, sounding tired and sad, tugging Remus's sweater. They walked back to the tower in silence, feet treading gently on the echoing stone floors. They stumbled into bed without another word, but Remus never fell asleep. He listened to the sounds of his three friends, of his found family, gently breathing as the moon sank below the mountains and the sun's first rays spilled out onto the grounds. Eventually, as he heard James stir, he realized he was bleeding. Gouged from the crook of his arm, a long, thick scab came away under his nails, sticky with clotted blood. The dull pain and warm blood grounded him as he dressed quickly and quietly and headed for the library. Friday morning, Remus and Peter wrote their Transfiguration essay on the Lapafor spell for Transfiguration while James and Sirius were off at Arithmancy. Who would want to turn things into rabbits? Remus muttered to himself, thinking about the uselessness and impracticality of such a spell. Don't they breed like mad anyways? Seems irresponsible. Are magically made rabbits real rabbits, or are they somehow different? Like a mirage of a rabbit? How does magic know what a rabbit even is? Peter asked, a thoughtful look on his face. That is way too intense of a question for nine in the morning, mate, Remus said with wide eyes, not wanting to think about the depth and breadth of magic and existence and how they were intertwined so soon after only just waking up. He was only 13 for Godric's sakes. Weren't they supposed to be talking about Quidditch? He pressed his fingers into his eyes and tried to shake the errant buzzing thoughts from his head. Hours later, during lunch, Peter asked, looking down at his schedule, where is our lancrency class? It doesn't say. They all pulled out their parchment. Does anyone even know who Professor Shafiq is? James asked. Sirius looked down the table, searching for someone, before shouting, Oi, Pruitt! The twins looked up in unison from halfway down the table, mouths full of corner sausage and potato salad. Where's the lancrency at? Gideon answered around his food, shrugging. Probably the lake. Sirius sat back down and they all looked at one another with raised eyebrows. Probably the lake? Peter asked. James shrugged. Let's go find out then. Fabian was right. The class was gathering at the edge of the far side of the lake. Purple and red cushions scattered about, the giant squid waving lazy tentacles nearby. Professor Shafiq was, for lack of a better word, fascinating. The class moved tentatively into the informal circle of cushions, all eyes fixed on the wildly captivating man before them. He had dark skin like James's, but a beard whiter and longer than Dumbledore's. 
he wore a rather long, shapeless white linen dress over matching trousers that stopped above his ankles, showing bare feet. His head was wrapped in a lilac turban, one that brought out his startlingly green eyes, eyes which were adorned in dramatic pink and gold eyeshadow, winged eyeliner and all, though it was partially obscured by his round, tortoiseshell glasses. His mustache was beautifully manicured, and his wrinkled skin looked somehow youthful. Remus had never seen an old man so... so pretty. He had never considered that a man could be so alluring. It was all very confusing, and he didn't want to think about why his hands were sweating. After settling themselves down at the professor's encouragement, Remus looked around at his peers to see similar looks of confusion and apprehension on their faces. Peter and a few others had a stunned, disbelieving sort of gape, as though someone had hit them over the head with a brick. James, Sirius, and a few girls had a sort of excited and raptured look on their faces as they took in the gold eyeshadow and what seemed to be black nail polish. Good afternoon, everyone, he smiled kindly, his voice smooth and calming like honey as he made eye contact with each and every one of them. Can anyone tell me why we're here today? They all looked at one another. A Ravenclaw girl's face twisted in confusion at the question. To learn a lancrency, she said, but it sounded more like a question. But what is a lancrency, Angela? He asked, and everyone looked taken aback by the familiarity at which he spoke to her. The pamphlet never said what it was, piped up Peter from beside Remus. And yet you all decided to make this class a significant part of the rest of your magical education, he said, his eyeshadow twinkling in the dappled light of the tree's canopy. They were all quiet for a moment as the professor waited for further engagement. What are we supposed to be questioning? Sirius asked, looking down at the faded informational pamphlet in his hands. His voice was loud, even over the rustling of leaves and lapping waves of the lake. Everything, Sirius. I want you all to question everything. Everything you ever thought you knew about anything. Remus had no idea what to make of that, but he was entirely enthralled. Ethics, the professor clarified, is what we discuss here. The moral philosophy of magic and life at large. Over the next year, we'll discuss the three schools of thought in relation to moral philosophy. Virtue ethics, consequentialism, and deontology or duty-based ethics. And we'll do this by learning how to think like philosophers. I want us to examine the concept of knowledge and to ask, how do we know? Let's start by playing a game, shall we? But the game was nothing like Remus had ever played before. They passed the double period doing an exercise the professor called Ask a Question, in which he posed a query, and whoever responded had to do so with another question. No statements, no answers. He said this would help them learn to not be satisfied with subpar reasoning, to always look for the layers. It was the kind of amorphous thinking and talking about magic and existence and reality that made Remus moderately uncomfortable. Is it ethical, he asked, to create creatures as you are taught to do in transfiguration, to create life without taking responsibility for it, without consideration for its fate? But it's part of the curriculum, Rose Spinnet, a Slytherin girl with freckles and wavy black hair, argued. No, Rose, pose a question about it, not a reasoned argument. Let us see how deep we can go. What is fate? asked Xavier Smith, a red-headed Hufflepuff, picking up the exercise again. Is fate real? James asked, looking like he was enjoying every second of the class. 
Do wizards have any real choices in what they do? Or are we all slaves to circumstance, to desire, biology? Asked the professor in response to James's enthusiasm. Remus looked over and caught Sirius's eye, who looked a bit overwhelmed and equally as uncomfortable. What choices do we have? Sirius had asked quietly, dropping his eyes to the grass in front of him. Professor Shafiq, or Sahail, as he insisted everyone call him, gave them each a simple leather-bound notebook at the end of class, exclaiming that they did wonderfully, though Remus couldn't tell what rubric they were being graded on, so he had no idea if that was an accurate statement. He told them the notebooks were magically protected. It was for all of their assignments and thoughts, for anything they wanted. No one could read it or open it, not even the professor himself. Remus ran his hand over the smooth cover and felt its magic ripple out, tingling up his arm in welcome. He unwrapped the leather thong from around its binding and flipped through the blank pages, feeling the satisfying texture of the rough-edged parchment. Their first homework assignment was to write a list of beliefs they had about themselves and others, at least ten of each. James was bouncing up and down, full of excitement and exuberance at the idea of all the self-reflecting and thinking and analyzing. Remus felt a little nauseous, and looking over at Sirius, who wouldn't meet his eye, he knew he wasn't alone in that. Okay, hi. Hello. (laughs) Thanks. I hate it. Do you feel um, personally attacked by this chapter? Yes. And I wanted to... Okay, so the, the chapter's a lot of um, window dressing mm-hmm. and scene setting mm-hmm. and plot-ish. But I think underneath that, there are so many critical details mm-hmm. in this chapter. Um, but before we talk about them, and then I sort of wax poetic about philosophy at the end... <laughs> <laughs> which you can cut out if you want to because nobody even no, wants here to talk it. about it <laughs> um, but the first thing I wanted to ask very selfishly is um, that scene of Remus after Sirius basically rescues him mm-hmm. how much of that is directly <laughs> quoted about me <laughs> oh my god I mean Sirius is you <laughs> No, but I mean, like, really, that scene is so, like, personal feeling. Mm. And I feel like I want to know, like, more about what Remus expects and then, like, comes away from that feeling. Do you know Mm. what I mean? Like, he's so angry for Sirius helping. Yeah. And then, like, not helping... Like, or not engaging in the way he wants to. And I just, like, I want to hear more about it. <laughs> so, like, tell me about I what think, you were thinking writing that. And... I think he's he's so frustrated at the context of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, Sirius just shows up and expects him mm-hmm. to get the same treatment from these older Slytherin boys who are normally so antagonistic with young Gryffindors. And Sirius just literally pitching up and being like, that's mine, put it down. And no questions being asked. And, like, even, like, Snape and the other, like one Slytherin are, like, very confused-looking. And Remus is like, what the fuck is going on? It's just, like, adding to this, like, weird sense that he knows there's something, like, really weird going on. You write him as so powerful Mm. in that moment. 
Yeah, as like a 13-year-old. Well, he's, yeah, he's yeah. 13. But like, you write him as as someone who is in complete control of a situation mm. that seems entirely uncontrollable. Yeah, completely. And, and I think that would like really throw Remus off. Like he was literally about to get shoved into a suit of armor for existing in the hallway. Yeah, but like there's nothing else Sirius should have done. Mm. You know? Yeah. Uh, just... I think it just like, like really speaks to that like there are so many weird arbitrary social things going on that like you were saying they mean so much to the yeah. people involved but are actually like entirely meaningless and Remus is just standing on the outside going what the fuck is going yeah. on I feel like you, I don't understand the rules I feel like this is one of those scenes where you wrote just like a scene from our lives yeah <laughs> what is happening and it makes me profoundly uncomfortable <laughs> like Profoundly. Like when we go to a dinner party and you're having a conversation with somebody and I have no clue what the subtext is, but like you know all of the things that are going on and I'm yeah. just sitting there like, yeah, the cake is nice. <laughs> and you're like, oh, some shit just went down. Yeah. Like, right. I did not pick up on that. We need to leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to enjoy the fucking food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like you really captured that. And I guess maybe it's reading it from Remus's perspective yeah. that I'm like reeling. Yeah. <laughs> Being like, oh my god, that seems so uncomfortable, and I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, and you know, but like, given that moment, I, I like that serious is Mm-mm. so relatable to me. Yeah, like definitely, especially the pulling him aside afterwards and being like, "What are you doing? Are you okay?" Yeah, exactly. As if like it's such a dangerous situation for Remus. Yeah, exactly. In, but like, serious is like. It doesn't I do touch this him. every night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like like somehow this is dangerous for Remus, but like it's yeah. not for Sirius. And like Remus being like, "What the fuck? I can't go out and get snacks." And Sirius is like, "No, obviously not." That concept yeah. in itself is making me do too much self reflecting. Yeah. I hate it. So like much. like how like how uncomfortable you get when I have to like go drive you know, at one in the morning down one of the back roads in my little car and you're like <laughs> so freaked out for me, but that's something that you do all the time. <laughs> I don't like being personally involved <laughs> to the table, to this discussion. Because it is, it is that moment yeah. of being like, you can recognize when you care about someone doing yeah. something, how dangerous it is yeah. and how like you want to like, you mitigate know, that. Yeah. But then the idea of you doing that mm. is like, that's like my fucking, like I, I would, I do that all the time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like actually I live not here, but mm. in an, in another area that's extremely dangerous and I don't think twice about driving up and down at, at two in the morning. Yeah. Whereas if I told my friends that I do that, yeah. like, like they won't even drive <laughs> during business hours yeah. by themselves yeah. because that's how dangerous it is. But I don't think about that for a second. Mm-mm. Like, what is that? What's wrong with my brain that I'm like, what do you mean something would happen? Yeah. No, well, I'm invincible, obviously. <laughs> like, I think that is such a serious black Gryffindor like, you know, intersection of insanity. <laughs> True. <laughs> like, like your own health and safety is your blind spot. <laughs> it's a massive one, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. But I will protect those other people at all costs. I know. And, like, you writing this scene and, like, hearing Remus being, like, he seems so infantilized and infuriated. Yeah, yeah. And if someone did that to me, I would be... Furious! I would literally throw myself down a flight of stairs. Yeah, and be just like, well, I broke of, my arm anyway. Yeah, Good luck keeping me from yeah. doing that. <laughs> oh 
like one specific <laughs> What? I'm not gonna say it. Oh god. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of examples of me of behaving examples. out of spite. <laughs> a few poignant ones yeah, come to yeah. mind. <laughs> Like, a friend just trying to be nice and kind and look after you, and it just makes you, like, so rageful. <laughs> like, no, I don't need that! That's true. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's I mean, but you get that way, too. No, I definitely get that way, which is why Remus has, like, a meltdown here. But then I'm thinking, mm-hmm. like, is that what it's like in our day-to-day life? Are you, like, rageful at me when I do these things? No, because we don't have incidences like this. Okay, but I would still drive you places at one in the morning. <laughs> Which I appreciate immensely. Okay. <laughs> as long as you're yeah. not like in the front of I'm, seat, I'm, like infantilized yeah. and angry. How no, dare I'm you. no longer like 13. Oh <laughs> I mean, I'm this serious, so obviously I haven't progressed at all. I'm glad you grew up and became a real person, but I am still stuck right here in this behavior. That's like me yesterday. I and the day before that. I've always existed as this person. I'm doing way too much self-reflecting about it. That's hilarious. That's so funny. But that scene is super important. I feel Mm -hmm. like because you you get a glimpse into all the behind the scenes. Yeah, definitely. The power feelings and I mean you have Not and Burke Mm. who are both um, Sacred Twenty Eight. But neither of them were at Ishtar. Yeah, yeah. Their their parents or their families, like the, there were quite a few where I imagined the families might think that these kids are too young yeah, yeah. to bring to something like this, so they would hold it off for years. Yeah. Um, but because Sirius's family doesn't give a shit about yeah. psychosocial development, yeah, no, they were like, "You're coming at thirteen. Yeah, exactly. Thirteen is when you grow up." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think he in that moment has significant power and authority and yeah. standing over them, yeah, even definitely. though they're years older. Yeah. And Remus has no idea what's going on, has no context for that, mm. didn't know what the Sacred Twenty Eight was mm-hmm. anyway. So then when you bring in like concepts like Snape is one of yours, yeah. Lupin is one of yours, mm. like they've clearly divided mm. themselves already. Yeah. And there are obvious ideas about allegiances mm. that Snape and Lupin aren't even aware of. No, not at all. And like you can see Snape is like, should I be offended right now? He just said I'm not his, but do I want to be his? Yeah, like <laughs> I want to be owned. Yeah, like wait a second. <laughs> Lupin gets one. Why don't I? What the fuck? <laughs> right? I want to be on a team. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> yeah. So again, really confusing, you know, <clears throat> treading the line between autonomy, sense of self, yeah. sense of belonging, sense yeah. of value to others. Like, mm. of course, Snape would be infuriated by mm. that, but also wouldn't want to be owned by it. Yeah, that. exactly. Like, <laughs> why am I mad about this? What is happening? I have so yeah. many feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And Remus just having that sense also of like, do I have autonomy in this friendship? Or yeah. what is going on here? You know, like, what, what are like what are the, the, the parameters and boundaries of this relationship? He's completely confused by it. Yeah. And as a 13-year-old, you have so little, like, um, I think, framework or vocabulary or anything for really understanding that or kind mm-hmm. of slicing it apart and examining it. And he's just sitting there like, am I just, like, a, an errant pet to you? Like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, that was such an interesting analogy, too, mm-hmm. because, like, obviously he's so wrapped up. Because then... You've done something brilliant in bringing the wolf into it as well. Mm. Like, on his way down to the kitchens, the wolf makes him Mm. undetectable. Mm. He's stealthy AF. Mm. You know, he's like... They're working together. Yeah, they're on a mission. (laughs) 
Um, but then on his way back, the wolf is like, I'm tired and yeah. full now. You You're on your own. Out, yeah. <laughs> and then he becomes sort of like back to being like an incapable 14 yeah. year old mm. with no special abilities to speak of. And then in his inner dialogue, he's like, am I just a dog? Mm. Which is like such an interesting comparison mm. between like, you know, the, the wolf who's not acting like a wolf, the mm. wolf who's not hunting. Yeah. Is it just a dog? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> Where's the domestication at? <laughs> exactly. Or has Sirius domesticated him yeah. in a way? Or, you know, what kind of mm. dynamic is there? I thought it was so interesting. That yeah. did it. So like on the, on the sort of basics or, or, you know, surface, a lot of window dressing and plot. You talk so much about classes and we mm-hmm. get little insights here and there. But I think the undertones of what's happening are fascinating in mm-hmm. this chapter. Yeah. And the dynamics between a bunch of them. Yeah. And I mean, they're getting older now too, so they're becoming a little more self-aware. Yeah. And aware of... Speaking of self-aware, mm-hmm. can we talk about how Remus thinks about Professor Shafiq? Because yes. he yeah. instantly is like, wow, he real pretty. He real pretty. <laughs> I don't understand what that means. <laughs> Why am I sweaty? Yeah, right? <laughs> this man is in a dress with eyeliner and I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 13 and confused. Yeah. <laughs> so clammy. Yeah. And yeah. he's never really had that. Yeah. You've never written anything where yeah. he like looks at someone and yeah. goes like, wow. I think he doesn't really understand what attraction is. Totally. Like, <clears throat> or has recognized it. And so like, I wouldn't know, I don't, I don't know if this is what I would like call attraction anyways, but I think because it's certainly fascinating, it's fascinating, you know, and, and like, he hasn't quite like put those pieces together and you know, he's obviously got like Marlene kind of like tagging along and fawning Ooh, over him. He has never he has, looked at and gone Yeah. And it's just like, that. Oh, Marlene's nice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's a person. Yeah. She exists. That's cool. Yeah. Helps with homework <laughs> is useful. Yeah. <laughs> like, but you know, versus this of like, yeah. Wow. I'm staring at yeah, you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, dang. That eyeliner, though. Yeah. <laughs> and not really, like, understanding what that means and why he's so uncomfortable. Like, is he uncomfortable because the class is uncomfortable? Or is it because how the professor's making himself reflect? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. I loved it, though. Mm. I mean, I think this chapter is so great. And we also get, like, a little bit of a glimpse of what's going on in the greater wizarding world, too, with, like, the discarded newspaper Mm. that Remus starts understanding, like, things are happening out there that maybe I should be aware of. Yeah. Well, we we sort of are trying to build every Mm. chapter hints and glimpses Mm -hmm. and and snapshots that they are in the isolated world of Hogwarts. Yeah. But that exists in the context of the wizarding world, which Mm. is building up to a war. Yeah. Um, And I think that's... That's also one of the reasons why the Slytherins and Sirius dividing into teams, oh, he's yours, mm-hmm. is sort of an allusion to, like, mm. you know, picking your sides yeah. and the way it's happening yeah. in the outside world Like, as the well. lines are beginning to be drawn. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's super interesting. You wrote it. <laughs> you wrote it super <laughs> interesting. <laughs> It was so funny because reading this was like, fuck, I did not remember any of this happened. <laughs> Why did I block this all out? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. a lot of our chapters, I think because we had a lot of space mm-hmm. in between the chapters. Yeah. Um, they got, and we had so many ideas we wanted to bring mm-hmm. in. And because I put a word limit on you. Oh, yeah, that was rough. <laughs> That's been a difficult exercise. Yeah, but I think it's it's good. Because otherwise it would just be like word vomit of an entire world into yes. one chapter. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it would. Yeah, like the whole Wizarding War would just be happening already. And then I pick up the next chapter like, holy shit, I was not ready for yeah. this. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. 
so yeah we're trying to like you know write these this massive story Mm -hmm. and I think switching perspectives on and off Mm -hmm. is a cool way to tell it but it's quite difficult to write I think in this context Mm -hmm. because you don't have one sort of cohesive narrative of events because yeah I mean the internal life of Remus and Sirius are so vastly different so different Yeah. yeah that's another thing that I thought was interesting is like you know Sirius's chapters there's so much escapism and Remus's chapter, I mean, he's really like, God, in the beginning of that scene, I'm an adult. I can take care of myself. Yeah. I'm hungry and I should go to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. talk about being engaged and, yeah. and aware of himself mm. and his own feelings yeah. and taking responsibility for that. Yeah. I mean, and that is a huge yeah. thing for him. And like, he's trying so hard and then like the whole... Then he just gets so invalidated. Yeah, yeah so I know. invalidated. <laughs> then he's just like, me, Finn doesn't want to hang out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel it's so, so bad. Yeah. Really bad. Just over here, like, yeah. make it stop. Yeah. And Reeves just, like, so desperately, like, wanting Sirius to feel, like, safe and okay. And then, like, no engagement back. And feeling just, like, so hurt by it. Look, I... <laughs> <laughs> like, I totally understand why it happens, you know, like... Yeah, if I were serious, I would have done... I mean, yeah. I would... I yeah. do... That do verbatim, that exact... That yeah. just would have, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I feel like I can't make any argument. I can't make any justification. I'm just over here like... Yeah, yes, yeah, well... <laughs> that's how it'd be. <laughs> <laughs> I think, therefore, I am. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> yeah. And that just, like, solidifying all of those, like, self-deprecating spirals. Which is so unfair because... Mm. Oh, I mean, the whole thing is unfair all around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to Sirius, I think he's really trying to protect Remus. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's trying to be a good friend. Mm -hmm. And he wants him... I mean, I'm sure Sirius in his mind is looking at Remus going, God, this kid's dealing with so much already. Mm. He's a fucking werewolf. (laughs) Just, I can't give him anything else to deal with. He's gonna not eat for a month. I just can't. I just can't. I can't. So he ends up taking on all of that responsibility of feeling like he's got to protect Remus. What do you think about the house elves? Because now they they the house elves are so invested in these two kids. (laughs) No, but but they're they're so interesting because on one hand they are enabling Sirius in great rule breaking Mm -hmm. and giving him alcohol. Yeah, and on the other hand they're like feeding up Remus. Yeah. So, like, mm-hmm, you know, are mm-hmm. they a force for good or they're a force for evil? <laughs> who who are they answering to? Yeah, no is, one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it just because Sirius is a black yeah. and a pureblood and used to house elves and knows mm-hmm. how to speak to them? Yeah. Or And has told them to act a certain way toward Remus? Mm. Or is there, you know, some other context there? You yeah. Know? And house elves... I think it's a little bit of both. The house elves of Hogwarts answer to Dumbledore. Mm. I mean, he's like the, the headmaster. Yeah. So, I mean, do they have any directive of, like, you're not allowed to give students alcohol? Clearly not. Clearly not. Clearly so, Dumbledore never thought to, like, <laughs> like, thought he had to specify that. <laughs> Which, honestly, if you run a high school, yeah. you should probably specify yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it just... It's like, can you imagine if Fred and George had figured that hack out? <laughs> just, just ask the house elves for fire whiskey? <laughs> they probably did. By that point, I yeah. feel like Dumbledore had figured that out. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe after <clears throat> maybe after yeah. serious. Yes. And they're like, oh god damn it. <laughs> yeah, so I mean it's interesting to imagine them as like protective and enabling mm-hmm. and protective and and Well yeah, think about Winky. 
protective and enabling. Oh yeah, completely. <laughs> you know, I think that's their whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> that is the theme. Here. Yeah, that is their whole like directive. Yeah, <clears throat> it's just really interesting to think, like you know, if the house elves are listening to one voice or over another, yeah, and why? Definitely. Um, and then what does that mean for like their involvement in things yeah, in general? Definitely. It's really fascinating because you you have to think that the purebloods or the people who had house elves, they are used in mm, the Wizarding Wars. Definitely. I mean, they act as agents of their mm. families. Or not, like with Dobby. So, yeah. That's super interesting. Interesting group of characters. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> in the I, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> like, the horde of house elves. Mm. And I just, like, love the idea of Remus showing up looking a bit like, you know... <laughs> skinny <laughs> now selves being like where the fuck have you been mm. you've not been at your table <laughs> yeah but then you you also have to think in that context Sirius's version of creature and mm. regulus's version yeah of definitely creature. i mean i definitely think to an extent they're autonomous to a certain point i mean they definitely like have favorites and their personality their whole thing and... is loyalty though yeah it's just a question of loyalty to whom and to, to who, what yeah exactly yeah, and, and their limited understanding of the outside wizarding world yeah. also. Yeah, definitely. And also that like profound Stockholm syndrome, I'm sure. Warps <laughs> a lot of stuff. <laughs> do you think do you think house elves like reproduce and have children? Definitely. Like, Isn't that canon? I don't think so. I think you I'm gonna have to look into that. I I feel like they definitely do. <laughs> like, what age does a house elf, like, become a slave? When do they start working, do you think? Do they, they just, like, they think... just step out of the womb with, a, like, a tea cloth. <laughs> <laughs> do you think they have the same concept of time and lifespan as wizards? I don't think so. Do you think it's longer I, or shorter? Yeah, I think it's way longer. Mm. I've always had this, like, thought that they lived for, like... I, I don't know if that's accurate because I've never really looked it in, but I've always imagined them living for, like... Decades or generations? Like generations, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, like how long has Creature been Are they serving? allowed to like reproduce? <clears throat> I think so. I'll have to look into that. So this opens another very strange door because it's an odd parallel to like slavery oh, and yeah, reproductive definitely. care under slavery. Yeah. Like that's one of the reasons why midwifery in the U.S. is so stigmatized mm-hmm. in some areas because it was associated with slavery, mm-hmm. which is now interesting to see so many uh, people of color and groups in the United States reclaim that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you can open a whole door there. A whole fucking can like, of worms. Like, do you imagine there are pureblood families who like breed house elves? Oh, definitely. Oh, that's so creepy. That is so fucked up creepy. I think, because, I mean, mean, the way that Ron spoke about it is, like, house elves come with, like, old families and big manor houses. Yeah, but... So, like, you think... But all of the the, um, wizarding homes that we've seen so far only have one, except Hogwarts. Yeah, Hogwarts. So maybe it's just Hogwarts. Mm -hmm. It's, like, this center of popping out house elves. And Winky kind of made it seem like her family had been serving the Crouches for, like you know, generations, like her mom and her grandma had been with the family. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, is there anything in... Is is Creature related to the house elf heads that are on the wall? I think so. So, but then how do, do they just, like, 
asexually reproduce. Like, one of them cuts off an arm and then just, like, <laughs> ourself grows from it. Like, how does this happen? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I have no clue. They're like sentient mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> Hermione would be very angry at us for this entire conversation. Yeah, no. She'd be like, they're not sentient mushrooms, they are beings. Yeah, <laughs> please okay. fuck off with yeah. your nonsense. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder. That's like a whole... Again, one of those things, JK just like opens yeah, the door. Yeah, just opens the door and then leaves it and there's like so many questions. Yeah. Like, what the hell is happening here? Yeah. Um, I love speaking back about the chapter, getting back from my circuitous house elf <laughs> rant. Um, I love your introduction of classes. Mm. I love that we wrote in... Um, there's a class on pure blood wizarding culture. Yeah. Uh, oikomency, which I feel like it's obvious that Lily would take it, mm-hmm. and obviously it's taught by one of the sacred twenty eight. Yeah, like this old who's school. very intense. Like yeah. I imagine, like a you know somebody at like a finishing school, like one of those. Really... I imagine Neville's grandmother. Yeah, but but more but, intense, but and mean. way meaner. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and like I hope in the future we write a few of those yeah definitely classes and what they're like because mm. you can only imagine like what what kind of magic and tradition is yeah. taught mm. at a school i mean you're getting a hint of it from serious aside but that's none of that is taught yeah no you know that's all learned the, like lived and that's all the extraordinary mm. versus like how to run a wizarding household yeah definitely or like think molly weasley Right, like how does she fucking do any of the stuff that she does? You no, know? but she does a lot of the stuff that the house elves would do. Yeah. So like, you know, what is the... I, I imagine in Oikmansi you're learning things like how to treat your house elf mm-hmm. versus how to do all of that magic. Mm. Or, um, you know, how to write an invitation yeah. for a pureblood gathering. Yeah, you know, definitely. Like a formal wizarding event. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, so oikomancy was one of those things I was really interested in. Mm-hmm. and But uh, so annoying because obviously Sirius wouldn't take that class. Yeah, <laughs> So course, I don't yeah. get to write about yeah. it. <laughs> I know, I just, I love the parallel between like James and Lily too because mm-hmm. Lily being like, well obviously I want to learn as much as I can about wizarding society and then James being like, I don't fucking know what a microwave is. Yeah, right? <laughs> Fuck, I need to Fuck. figure out mother society <laughs> yeah, real Jesus. quick. Jesus, oh God. And like how... <laughs> how defensive and scathing Lily always is towards James about him just like assuming people just know about wizarding society like inherently because like he doesn't quite understand his point of privilege and, totally. and, and like he, Lily's making him recognize that and he's like oh fuck I've got so much to do <laughs> well yeah and recognize how little he knows about muggles yeah uh, in, in yeah like, not that he has any particular bias against muggles because obviously like his dad like loves muggles he's mm-hmm. like mentioned it before but more of like an Arthur Weasley infatuation. Nothing really practical. Yeah, you know? totally. Totally. Um, yeah, so I was a little sad. I don't get to write about awakenment but hopefully we second it hand bring it up. Yeah. Um, and get into why that's no longer taught at Hogwarts. Yes. Yeah, we which have, is like a whole like thing that we wanted to get into. Yeah, Yeah, because we also imagined that the classes at Hogwarts must have changed over yeah, time. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, yeah. It couldn't have always just been the same yeah. subjects. Which is also why I wanted to write, like, astronomy. Like, what would you learn in astronomy over so many years, you know, from a mm. wizarding perspective? And this year is, like, they actually get into science yeah. and math. Which is a horrible part. Yeah, yeah, and we were just like, wait a second. <laughs> this just got hard. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we have quite a few changes mm. also coming up with classes. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we could talk about Elaine Quincy. Yeah. I love this idea of them having a class where they learn how to think mm. and learn how to, yeah. you know, actually engage in this, you know, what is right, what is mm. wrong, how do I, how do I uh, evaluate my own thoughts and my yeah. own perspective on something? Definitely. Um, is there a way to objectively ask, is this wrong, is this right? Yeah. And I think that's such an important concept with, again, the war coming mm. up. I mean, so many of these children after they graduate, will be put in a situation where they have to pick a side yeah. and pick allegiances. And how does one do that? How does one look at a situation and go, no, you're correct, you're correct, mm-hmm. I believe you, mm-hmm. I, my values or my ethics or my, yeah. you know, whatever platform I'm using to make decisions allows me to agree with this side. Yeah. Um, and that's not something that is often taught to young people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge waste Yeah, because young people are incredibly curious and they're figuring, figuring things out about the world. We should help give them a language and a methodology mm. to understand why and make arguments around yeah, definitely. why. Um, and I think Elenquency is sort of like our version of that in the magical world. Yeah. And I love that you wrote about them asking about creating life. Mm. I mean, in Transfiguration, they're... they're Just turning... making rabbits. Yeah. And, and you know, Remus is already has questions about it. Like, this is fucking weird. Yeah, like, where what happens to these rabbits? Are they all going in a stew? Or, like, yeah. who's taking care of it? Is it Filch just, like, collecting rabbits every day? Like, <laughs> what happens? Do they feed the owls? Yeah. Like, where are they going? Yeah, exactly. Do they have an expiration date? Do they just, like, pop out of existence? And, you know, they're, they're creating rabbits that aren't newborns Mm -hmm. so what is that rabbit's understanding of its own existence yeah it just popped into a being yeah you know what does it know about history what does it know about its own consciousness does it have genetics (laughs) who knows yeah Yeah. where do we get this are they all the exact same are they identical twin rabbits these are fucking or is this like your own personal magic and the magic you're using creating this creating rabbit. a unique is that rabbit. something related to you as a person that's fucking terrifying <laughs> because yeah. now you've just created a life and walked away yeah and it, you're gonna eat it later maybe yeah in this maybe stadium. your owl's gonna eat it or something yeah. <laughs> what the fuck yeah so this concept of like you know taking ownership of yeah. what you do with your magic mm. i think is also super important mm. um and you know if Again, this concept of you have so much access to power, you are an incredibly powerful being, magic is power, what do you do with that? Are you allowed to just do whatever you want? Mm. Are you allowed to just cast dark magic? Mm -mm. You know, are you allowed to create life? Are you Mm. allowed to take away life? Yeah, are the laws the ministry put forward, like, ethical in relation to magic? Yeah. Are they practical? Where are they coming from? Yeah. Why are there only three unforgivable curses? Yeah. I'm I mean, sure there are some more fucked up things. I mean, we write in Blood Magic, why aren't those old marriage rights of forcing someone to mm-hmm. want to have sex with you? Mm-hmm. Why is that not? Why isn't Amortentia a part of that? That seems really fucked up. Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, these are all big questions and things that, the kinds of things that they would discuss in Alenquist. Yeah, definitely. And that, that class when we started talking about it and like creating kind of like the framework of what we wanted to do, I always thought of like, thinking that you know this is the 70s mm-hmm. and thinking like 1960s and 70s what was going on 
around the world on college campuses, right? Mm. A lot of, like, free-thinking protests, like, a lot Completely. of, like, civil rights movements. Challenging and government, challenging yeah, yeah. authority. There's, yeah. like, a whole, like, uh, shift in, like, civilian consciousness about, like, what do we do with our time and energies? You know, what are we working towards together as, like, a community? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what this reminded me of. Uh, absolutely. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, that there has been a continuation from that since then. And I think especially this generation now is mm. doing a lot of that as yeah. well. And I think there's a sort of a secondary movement around, cool, that was great. We shouldn't be assholes about things like um, yeah. love. Mm, mm. Um, but we also now need to think more about we shouldn't be assholes about things like systemic racism mm, mm. and, you know, uh, anti-immigration bias. Yeah. Or, you know, does someone's nationality, what are borders of countries? Mm-hmm. What does that even mean? Yeah. Why is this arbitrarily based on like a colonialist history? Yeah. All of these bigger questions that I think those sort of movements in the 60s and 70s and even from movements before mm. that were sort of encouraging this idea of like, let's let's question things. Yeah. Um, encouraging like social dissent. Completely. Mm. Or not even just dissent, but like... If, monitoring and evaluation mm. of a system by the, the participants in yeah, the system. Yeah, definitely. Um, which I think is an incredibly important process. And I'm really happy to see that it's such a normalized and talked about thing mm. now. Um, yeah. It, yeah. How effective it is, we aren't sure yet. Yeah. <laughs> but we are hopeful, I yeah. suppose. Very much so. Yeah. I think, like, globally, the 1970s was a really interesting time period too so like you know there's a lot of stuff going on a lot um and how that like interplays and affects the magical community and creates this environment because it's not you know happening in isolation like i think um how it was written in canon is like this happened in isolation in britain and didn't really like bleed out into the rest of you know like um victor crumb was just like yeah i know you know Voldemort was powerful here but we didn't really have to worry about him yeah back home (laughs) and i don't know how realistic that is well it's hard to say that everything is in isolation in the world that we exist in now i mean obviously neither of us would alive in the 1970s mm-hmm. and, and that was a time before it was as interconnected as our right. world is right now so i think it could have been more separate mm. but certainly as us engaging with this story now it's yeah. impossible to imagine that. but i don't even think so because this is even like post you know two world wars i mean that's still pretty interconnected no, I mean, obviously not in a specific yeah, way. Right. I mean, and not to the extent of like social media, but yeah. And depending on where you are, your information is can be incredibly controlled mm, by true. stuff like the state or mm. the the media. And you know, if if you're in an area that doesn't want to be involved, it won't be involved. Mm-hmm. Regardless, is like if you as a citizen are really yeah. keen to be involved, it would be very difficult to yeah. do that. I think, yeah, it's really hard for me to imagine that world and mm-hmm. what it looked like and what it felt like for people. Yeah. Especially if you think about, um, you know, even in some parts of the world today, if I think about people I know who are living in, let's say, rural Mali. Yeah. They are not engaged in the world in the same way mm-hmm. that we are. Yeah. They are 
a few steps removed because mm-hmm. their sources of information are a few steps removed. Right. Obviously, having cell phones and internet access really changes that, mm-hmm. but only to a certain extent. Yeah. Because if your internet access, if it's free to use WhatsApp or Facebook, mm. your information comes through those two things. Yeah. You're not going to be reading the New York Times. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be reading Al Jazeera. Yeah. You know, like those are sources that cost money and therefore become inaccessible. Yeah. So a certain narrative persists in a certain way in certain areas. Yeah, and we all know news on Facebook is a bit of a joke. No kidding, yeah. Mm. I mean, that's what I'm saying. If if you're only reading the things that either your state is, mm. is you know, you've liked your local government, therefore your local government propagates news, or stuff like your country mm. media, or um, stuff like the BBC is free to, to read, but... Yeah, whether or not you're reading it or you trust it. Yeah. Or it's talking about issues in... Like, how often does it talk about issues in Mali? Not yeah. very often. Yeah, exactly. Like, so. your, your rural community. Exactly. But, yeah. I think these are all interesting things to think about. And the wizarding world is so insular in and mm. of itself. I wonder what other... You know, what is a person in Italy? What is their understanding of what happened in Britain Mm-mm. how interconnected was it was there just like a travel ban for a while yeah, like, yeah you know exactly. what was mm. what was the the effect to, yeah. to people living were they elsewhere? repatriating their yeah <laughs> you know their you wizards know, yeah, their, their relatives <laughs> being like cool I'm you know I'm done yeah. here now yeah what is anti-muggle sentiment like in other places is that like a specific to Britain thing well, or the Fantastic Beasts I know you don't want to talk no, about I Fantastic Beasts no I don't I hate it so much but okay <laughs> Well, they talk about this idea that anti-Muggle sentiment in the U.S. is so much worse yeah. than in Europe. Mm. And that's also a fascinating idea. Because yeah. then, it is a fascinating concept. I just... Yeah. You just hate the series. Yeah, I do. I love, I, I, again, I like the concept of Fantastic Beast, but its execution was shaky at best. I'm just very confused. Yeah, the st- I don't seen... know who the fuck is writing those movies, but like, you all need to reevaluate your screenwriting skills. <laughs> Yeah, your I mean, narrative is way off. <laughs> I mean, we say writing like this yeah. monstrosity. Of yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> you got a lot of loose ends to tie up there, buddy. I don't know where you're going with the story. Yeah. I suppose we'll see. I will watch them as they come out. Yeah, I will begrudgingly, only because I want to see if they actually tell a complete narrative by the end of the fifth movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. Sorry, I got way off track no, it's fine. with that one. I, I read a fic once that was really, really good that talked about, um, you know, this concept of, like, muggle integration mm. into, like, magic societies, and it was set in um, Egypt, and how there was so much of the magical world woven into the muggle world, and the way that it was, like, woven in was, like, so normalized. Mm. Um, and it wasn't, like, not that they were, like, overtly practicing magic, in front of muggles, but that like there was like a bit of like mystery happening that muggles didn't really mysticism. question. Yeah, like mysticism and didn't yeah. quite didn't really question it and just like accepted it as like a very normal part of daily life. That's very interesting. Mm. I think mm, depends on where you are, what that would look like. Yeah, because I definitely you, think so. If you sort of move away from northern Africa, mm-hmm. where there is a lot of mysticism in modern religion, mm. especially Islam, and more indigenous. Uh, animistic religions of the areas there is so much mysticism Mm. but as you move further south in africa i mean that mysticism becomes very closely tied to so much fear Mm -hmm. and we've talked about this before the concept of magic or people who are Mm. capable of using magic or witchcraft Mm -hmm. is usually what it's called it 
is so powerful it's very terrifying yeah and um in order for muggles to like interact with that in a day-to-day sense they do here mm. but it's in a very fearful yeah uh, place so it's really interesting to imagine like what how it would appear in different parts of the world like mm-hmm. i have no idea what it would look like in southeast asia for yeah example. definitely or no concept of you know what brazil might mm-hmm. be like yeah and what people's in those societies would think about this idea of like a muggle living your day-to-day life and something mystical or unexplainable happens. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I just know here people, people see many things as mystical or unexplainable, Mm. particularly health related. Yeah. If there was like an, uh, an underground magical world, like in the Harry Potter universe living here, it would very much be underground and secret (laughs) in a very similar context. Do you think, Out of fear. Do you think then Sangomas or, or witch doctors or um, Niangas would be like wizards who are sort of rejected by wizarding society who then like take advantage of mm. muggles? Maybe, yeah. That's interesting. Mm. I wonder. Because they're certainly viewed... So many people use them. Mm. For their own attempt at benefit. Mm. But it's almost like paying into a system that... that Or paying into a belief system that could turn around and... Mm-hmm. You know, someone else could pay a Sangoma to do you great harm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, potentially kill you. Mm-hmm. So it's... It's almost like a type of gambling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like that's like a whole other discussion too. We could easily write so yeah. much about that. And mm. I think we will. Yeah. I had a really interesting conversation about that, actually. Um, somebody was trying to explain to me that, like, um, where they're from, uh, the concept of, like, Sangomas, like, only do good magic, but mm-hmm. witchcraft is always bad magic. And there's a distinct difference between the two. Mm. And as soon as, it's, 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 as soon as you've done bad, you've done witchcraft. But as long as you're practicing good, it's fine. You're a healer and you're doing, like, Sangoma work. And that's interesting because different places... I mean, yeah, obviously it's like different depending yeah. on where you are, but that was like their interpretation. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I wish that there were well-documented um, ways for people to access this information mm. and for us to see like what is mm-hmm. it like. You know, if you look at different areas of Congo, what mm-hmm. do people think about witchcraft? Yeah. You know, if you look at different areas of Angola, mm-hmm. which is right next to Congo, how yeah. different is it? I think that that's a really interesting question because obviously selfishly I would love to know that but it kind of takes us back to the conversation we had in Blood Magic and it's like what right do we actually have to that information totally other than what's like freely offered by like friends and acquaintances you know totally and then also you have to the added layer on top of that is what kind of population are you interviewing Mm. and what is the influence of Christianity yeah of course and Islam on those two concepts Mm. Um, because like if you think about Angola, for example, mm-hmm. or, you know, any, any other place mm-hmm. in sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa, across this entire continent, a lot of this idea of the supernatural mm-hmm. or the mystical or the magical is imbued with both traditional ideology mm-hmm. and religion. Yeah. And by religion, I mean vast majority Christianity, but mm-hmm. as well as, as uh, Islam. Yeah. So, and how those things changed people's perceptions Mm -hmm. or people's concepts of like, you know, what's good, what's bad, what's Mm -hmm. anything. 
Yeah, it's a huge conversation to have. And we are probably the least equipped to have it. We have very much an outsider perspective. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, people tell us things and we discuss them, maybe mm. because we're safe, because we're outsiders. Mm-hmm. And neither of us are particularly religious. Mm. So, I mean, I have had lots of conversations with people about, you know, traditional beliefs versus their religion. Yeah. Or how the two things mm, coexist. Um, but, yeah, obviously we don't have any personal weight to yeah, that definitely. conversation. But it is fascinating. I wonder, there's a lot of people here who adopted Christianity Mm -hmm. or who were given Mm -hmm. Christianity as a replacement for their traditional Mm -hmm. beliefs. Forced into Christianity. (laughs) Yeah, the the way you term that has been a very heavy, politically correct discussion. Um, But then who Christianity then turned around and said that all of their... Well, some sects of Christianity turned around and said all of their traditional beliefs are wrong and, like, devil-based. Yeah. So, even just that concept is yeah. a minefield to Definitely. think about. It is. It's like a lot there. Yeah, and I wonder what wizards would think of religion. Yeah. Like... Do they think that's just muggles, like, explaining Yeah, magic? rationalizing or, magic. Or are wizards... Religious. Yeah, do they have their own religious beliefs like of where magic comes from? No, of what happens after death, even. Sure. Like, that's not a question that's answered by magic. You know, like, it just isn't. Unless you're Harry Potter. Yeah. And you happen to have died. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unless it's answered by, like, McGonagall's transfiguration. Like, you go into non-being. That is to say, everything. <laughs> like, that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe magic just is the answer. Or the fact that the veil exists. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, fucking hell here. <laughs> I have so many questions Yeah, exactly. Now, none of which are answered by either magic or religion. Yeah, no. It's just like, <laughs> nope. Or physics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no kidding. A religion unto itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, yeah. Sorry, I went also very off topic mm-hmm. there, but all of these things I think are fascinating. Yeah segues and we're going to talk about so many of them yeah something that like we we really discuss a lot like when we get into the elancrency specifically is like what is magic mm. like what the fuck is it is it yours and why do who gave it to yeah, you who gave it to you and why do some people have access to it and others don't yeah i talk about that in my next chapter yeah. a bit so and i know that's something that like we build on a bit like we want to as time goes on yeah did you do something to deserve magic yeah you innately deserve it yeah exactly what makes that different yeah yeah is it genetic is it luck? is it like a recessive gene that's passed down <laughs> is your physiology somehow different <laughs> but then how could you have muggle-borns <laughs> question yeah it's a real weird recessive gene (laughs) we'll talk about it next uh chapter discussion yeah okay cool okay is that enough for this one i think so is there anything else you want to bring up about Um, this chapter i'm just really happy you talked about the wolf yeah me too i think like as he gets older and becomes more self-aware and like um connecting with that part of himself and not so like i mean yeah yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but, like, less horrified with that part of himself. Mm. I think, like, it becomes a little more, like, anthropomorphized. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are you happy? I'm very happy. Are you happy? Super happy. Okay, excellent. (laughs) I'm excited to read my next one. Excellent. (laughs) Okay, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye, everyone.